Hey guys, welcome back to the show where we discuss the truth, your psychology, what's really going on with it so you can grab the reins of it, begin to manage it rather than it manage you, and you can ultimately make the decisions that you want to make with your life so you can live the life that you want to live. I mean, what's better than that? So you can stop procrastinating so much. I know there's lots of opportunities to procrastinate on the internet. You're probably procrastinating right now if you're watching YouTube, right? And if you want to continue procrastinating, not that I fully endorse procrastination, but we all do it to some degree. So if you are, are going to do it, watch my channel. Also, I did an interview with the dating coach, Patrick Stedman, earlier this week. I'll link it in the description so you can go check that out. It's two hours. So wow, that's two hours of awesome opportunity you get to procrastination. But it's not really procrastination because you're learning, right? You're, you're getting insights in your psychology. So it's totally not procrastination, you guys. So yeah, go check that out we have two questions from one listener and these seem like disparate separate disconnected questions uh, but i think we're going to find the unifying theme here right that's what's key to do with your psychology and your, and your emotional issues is it seems complex it seems like there's all these disconnected uh, issues emotional issues affecting you all these disconnected situations but there is a unifying theme when we look at fundamentally what your psychology must be if you are to have a psychology what emotions must be if you are to have emotions and how they must work based on what your nature is then we can begin to unify these seemingly disparate issues doesn't help you work through any of your issues oh well it does i mean it doesn't automatically <laughs> Uh, make the issue go away, but at least gives you a clear path forward. So we can at least take out the complexity and make it simple. And that's what we'll do with these two issues. So the first one is about female sexuality and what we need to do to really, uh, what would you say here, uh, to really come to terms with female sexuality and what that is. And the other one is about codependence. We'll do the codependence first, then bringing around to female sexuality. So his question is about uh, when people who have trauma, how they treat their children, how, or how they can, how people with trauma treat their children or people in their family, or maybe close friends, they, they treat them uh, in a negative way. They're very critical of them. They may even abuse them or lash out or yeah, be uh, criticize them excessively. But they don't do this to people they don't know. So the people with the trauma, they, they're really nice to people who they don't know so well, but the people they do know uh, better or the people who are closer to them, they tend to treat them uh, in a harsher way. So why is this? I mean, what is the exact mechanism for this happening? Well, you know, let's start by saying that the way to think of trauma, a helpful way to think of trauma is some nugget, not the golden nugget, <laughs> but a nugget in your psyche that is deep and it influences many other areas of your life. And what this nugget of trauma says, wherever the trauma comes from, abuse, uh, you know, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, what this nugget of trauma says is that in effect, you are no good. You are not a good person. And what's more is it's difficult for you to confront this trauma because there's lots of guardians uh, around what it is. I, I mean, this is symbolized in pretty much every movie we've all ever seen ever is this deeply kept 
secret or this thing that is ultimately in control of so many other things and there's all these guardians around it but of course when it's revealed what this thing is that is ultimately in control of so many other parts of the movie or it informs what the main theme is once we see what this thing is in control like the man behind the curtain right once we see what this thing that's in control once we see what it is it's really not that big of a deal. Though there's all these guardians, it looks really scary on the surface, but when we broach it, when we confront the, the trauma, as represented by, for instance, the man behind the curtain, when we confront it for what it is, it, it really begins to lose its power. So, so that's a good way of thinking of trauma. So what if you had a belief deep in your psyche that said you were no good? How would you act? Well, first of all, what this listener doesn't bring up, but definitely happens, is the first thing you would do is you would beat yourself up. You know, we often look at people who are traumatized and say, well, how could you treat your, your friends and, and your family and the people closest to you, your children? How could you treat them in such a negative way? And the flip side of that is, well, yeah, they do treat them in a negative way, but you should see how people who are really traumatized, how they treat themselves. Like, however people are traumatized, usually, however critical they are of, for example, their children, they are 10 times that critical of themselves. Whatever they say to their brother or their sister, I mean, they say way worse things to themselves, right? So you're this person who is no good. By extension, the people closest to you are no good. I mean, that is the lack of boundary caused by the dysregulated trauma, right? The trauma we don't have aware of. This causes a boundary issue. So the people who are close to you, they aren't their own separate person. They are a part of you. So you will, in effect, beat them up the way that you beat yourself up. And it's all a way to avoid. It's all a way to avoid confronting the traumatic issue for what it is and talking through it in a healthy way so it begins to lose its power. Because your children are an extension of you. The, you know, the, the other people in the neighborhood, they aren't an extension of you. You want to put on the best front for them because it's all about protecting yourself from them. It's all about getting them to not see your deep-seated trauma issues. Uh, but your children, right, they're an extension of you. And so you want them to act in a certain way, not because it's good for them necessarily, but because it makes you look like a better person. It helps to protect you from your own trauma. Because, again, you have the boundary issue, again, caused by the dysregulated emotion, here, trauma that we're talking about, and insecurity, dysregulated insecurity, trauma, it's all you know, kind of the same thing. I mean, we're all traumatized to some degree. No, we don't all have capital T trauma, but, you know, there's a lot of gray area between how we're all traumatized versus, you know, like genuine PTSD. I think you have to look at a, a fMRI or an MRI of your brain to really see genuine, we'll just say, for example, PTSD. Um, so, yeah, what was I saying? So, yeah, you, you are always acting in a way to protect yourself from this deeply held belief that you are no good, yet it's this you are no good belief that of course informs so much of your other actions, which explains why you latch out, latch out, why you lash out at family members or people closest to you, not so much people who, uh, you know, who live down the street, for instance. So that's the mechanism behind it, right? And um, so what we need to do in a sense is go in and, and manage the trauma for what it is. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that when we talk about uh, female sexuality. There is overlap here. And another reason is people who 
uh, surround themselves or, or people who will at least befriend. I know if you're, you know, the child of somebody who has a trauma, who has trauma, you know, it's not your choice. But people who are close friends of people who have trauma and have not managed it, they tend to be complicit in it, right? Like the the wife, I'm going to say something really controversial here, but it's totally true. The wife of an abusive male is, or abusive man, abusive husband, is complicit in the abuse, right? A part of her likes being abused because she has the same thing. She has the same thing that says that, that she is no good, right? And the way that she is abused by this man confirms that belief. So it doesn't feel good necessarily, but it is comfortable. It is familiar. Now, am I saying that she is at fault for the abuse she receives? Of course, I'm not saying that. Is she responsible? Yes, of course. If she is an adult, and hopefully if she's married, she's an adult, then she is, of course, responsible for her issues and how because of her unmanaged issues, because of her unmanaged trauma, she is more likely to seek out an abusive guy or, or not seek out an abusive guy. Well, but you know, just how people who are predators, uh, physical predators, sexual predators, they treat everybody like that. You know, they, they just put out like little psychic feelers and they treat people with a little bit of disrespect. And the people who don't have as deep seated as trauma as they have, they think it's weird. Like, oh, this guy's weird. What's going on? But the girl at the bar who does have that deep seated trauma, it, you know, the, 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 the lightning bolt goes off and he goes, oh, this is, this is familiar if she has not yet processed that trauma. She is not at fault, of course, for how she is abused, but she is, of course, responsible by who she is metaphysically to manage her trauma. So the next time she comes across a guy who is going to be abusive or going to be a predator in any way, she goes, oh, that's weird. Right? She just has that immediate reaction because she's managed as a trauma. So that's kind of the flip side of why people close to uh, people of trauma are often abused, well, because they want to be abused. And the people who are abusing the other family members, they get abused in their own way too. I mean, it definitely goes both ways. So that's enough on that for now. And we'll come back to that when we talk about female sexuality. The other question this listener has is, I know I've talked about before how just as a society, as a culture, we have not really come to terms with female sexuality in all its power. Uh, we are not ready to come to terms with female sexuality, maybe. Um, and he asks why or what, what are we afraid of and what would happen if female sexuality was, quote, let loose or let out of the bag? Well, I think female sexuality is out of the bag. It always has been out of the bag. It's just we haven't come to terms with the fact that it is. And I think it's very similar, of course, to, as I implied uh, in the intro there, it's very similar to the issue of codependence and trauma and, and separation, right? Working through your trauma means separating from that deeply held belief that you are no good. It means that belief no longer has a hold on you the way that it once did and no longer infuses as many of your thoughts, beliefs, and actions, emotions as it once did. And that's the same issue with uh, sexuality. I mean, women are the gatekeepers of sexuality. Women are sexually more valuable than men. Women are biologically more valuable than men. That is just the truth of who we are, and it's going to be that way until we become a different species. I mean, just the, the, the it's not 
the only example, but the one example of this, of course, is men produce millions of sperm a day. Women only have a select number of eggs they can, they can produce or they have produced throughout their lifetime. Women, it is more important for them to be choosier when it comes to sexual partners than, than men are. And there's nothing we can do about that. Now, there's ways that, that men can do, there, there's things that men can do to kind of shift the odds in their favor to make it more equal. But ultimately, you're just shifting the odds to give yourself a better advantage so you can create a healthy relationship with a woman because you've separated from the sexuality. So I guess before I get to that, maybe that would be a good time to bring it up now. Well, I'll, I'll get to that later. But first, so what do I mean by we haven't come to terms with female sexuality is we have not fully separated from the fact. We have not fully come to terms with the fact that women are sexually more valuable than men are. Women are biologically more valuable. And what this looks like in the real world is that when a woman rejects us, if we have not come to terms with our sexuality, if we have not separated from our sexuality, we'll get to it. If a woman rejects us, we take it really personally. It means something about who we are if a woman doesn't like us, if a woman doesn't text us back after a first date, for instance, because we have not gone through the process of separation. Just like when we're 13 and our parents do something that's really embarrassing. Of course, everything our parents do is embarrassing when we're 13 because, again, we have not separated from our parents. This is why I talk about the stages of, of adult development as stages of separation. First, there's parent separation. I mean, that's uh, pretty explicit. You need to separate psychologically from what your parents are. So your, your parents' emotions don't affect you anymore. Who your parents are don't affect you anymore. How your parents feel don't affect you anymore. How your parents behave in, around your friends, it doesn't bother you anymore because you are not them. You've gone through the work of separating. Very similar to the separation work we need to, of course, do with our trauma. And this could be, you know, fall in line with the parent separation if the trauma if, involves our parents, which it usually does. There's some um, authority figure. Uh, and this is the work we need to do with our sexuality as well. So, you know, another stage of adult development before we get to the sexuality is, is, is your friends. It, it, and what you're doing there, like what, what I always say about that is you have separated from your friends when you can be around them and neither feel the need to destroy men who are, you know, seem more powerful than you, nor do you feel the need to destroy or, or to, yeah, yeah, you don't feel the, the compulsion to be destroyed by men or yet yeah, to destroy, which is kind of a, uh, there's a relationship there. Men who are powerful than you, nor do you feel better or feel superior to men who are typically we would see as less, have less status than you. So maybe they make less money. I mean, do you just inherently feel better around men who make less money than you? Right, that is an issue. That is a status issue you have not yet fully separated from. It still means a lot to you. You are neither better nor are you worse than other people of the same sex just because you happen to make more or less money than they make. Similar with our work separation. What effectively we do with our work is as we get better at developing an interest and being able to help other people with that, that's what work is, 
we make it mean less and less about us, right? We are more separated from the outcome of what the work is. Similar with her sexuality. If we have not yet separated from our sexuality, the approval or disapproval of women makes a big deal. Um, and that and this is why I think that sexual initiation is really vital. And I, I think the best way for young men to initiate themselves sexually, to separate themselves, I'm just saying the same thing in a different way, to separate themselves from their sexuality is the cold approach. Or, you know, I come from this ancient civilization called the late 90s, early aughts, where we just called that talking to, to women, and that's just what you did. There was no other real way to get a girl to go out with you. You had to talk to women. And you need to be rejected by women. You need to see that look on a woman's face when she, you can just tell. She doesn't have to say it because she's too nice. Maybe if she's drunk, she'll say it. But, but she's typically too nice to say, you are an inferior match for me. There is not, if, if we were the, like the last person on earth kind of thing, I still wouldn't. And you need to be able to, to look at what her expression on her face is when she's thinking that. And it's important to come to terms with that. Important to come to terms with the fact that some women are going to feel that way about you no matter what you do. No matter how good looking you are, no matter how tall or how much hair or how much money you have, uh, there are, it's, there's just nothing you can do about that. And it's important to really not take that personally because, again, it, there's, there's just these it's part of who we are as a species. There are these evolutionary forces behind that look on our face that are way bigger than her, that are way bigger than you and your path to individuation. So there's nothing to take personally. Now, of course, as I was saying before, there's things you can do to, as a man, to skew the odds in your favor. I don't think you're ever really going to have as much uh, sexual power, typically. I mean, there, there are ways. You know, being famous or being really wealthy are two ways. Uh, but, but you know, w without doing something like that, there's still things that you can do to just skew the odds in your favor by, I would say, getting a boundary, getting a life together, managing your emotional issues, and developing the kind of life where you can put yourself in front of enough, enough women who you would potentially be interested in so one of them sees you and you're much more likely to, to meet a girl who can really latch on to you and a girl who's a good fit for you right now you're doing some of the selecting too probably not as much probably your selection is going to be more cerebral than, than the woman's selection but it's still probably not going to be the same exact amount of selection you know it's like uh it's like anything it's, it's like playing blackjack right i mean i like playing blackjack because because I'm so cheap and I do like gambling but I like playing blackjack because there are things that you can do to skew the odds in your favor and, as, and effectively if you play blackjack a certain way I'm not even talking about counting cards if you play blackjack a certain way you, you can essentially make the odds 50-50 so you can at least have more fun while you're playing blackjack but but the, but, but the analogy doesn't work because you have a limited amount of money. You have a limited amount of money as you're sitting there in front of a blackjack table. You know, you do the thing where you get up and go to the ATM to get more money. Hopefully everybody's there to help you uh, create a, a, a wasting money or spending money or get gambling money plan for the night. Um, but the analogy doesn't work because, yeah, you only have a limited amount of money. If the analogy carries over to women, you don't have a limited amount of uh healthy use of your libidinal energy out in the world, which just means you can keep talking to more and more women 
And in fact, the more you lose, quote unquote, by getting rejected, uh, and the more you can process that rejection and separate from it, the more likely you are to talk to more women, to put more women in front of you. So eventually you're gonna meet one who's right for you and then you can really skew the odds in your favor. So, so if the analogy carries over, all you have to do is win one hand of blackjack, one big hand, which I think if you play uh, blackjack relatively well, you're gonna do throughout the night. Now, overall, you're gonna be down or probably about on average again. Like I think the odds are about 50-50 if you play blackjack well, but right, so so you can kind of skew those odds in your favor. So it's not, I mean, the female sexuality is out of the bag. It always will be. It will be no matter what. The question is, are we as men able to come to terms with it? And women have a you know very uh, same issue too. I mean, how this looks, I think, in, in culture, not separating from the power of female sexuality because you know there's women out there who have a lot more power sexually than other women for obvious reasons that you know the quorum prohibits the mention why, but the, um, you know they the way that they talk about. Okay, so can we talk about female sexuality without decrying it necessarily or lionizing it? You know, without the you-go-girlism or without saying, oh, you know, she dances that way at a club, she must be a huge slut and make all these inferences about her and her sexual partners. Or if we find out how many sexual partners that she had, do we make inferences about that? No, I'm not saying that all sexual partners are created equal. Obviously, there's a thing called promiscuity, but it has really little to do with how many sexual partners you have and more to do with why you were having sex with those people. Are you doing it as a, a genuine outcrop of this connection you're making with somebody, or are you doing it to receive validation, right? Those are, and on the surface, it looks uh, the same, but actually it's psychologically totally different. One, I think, is healthy, natural, all those great things. The other one is maladaptive if you're using sex to get validation. I mean, that's the, that's the, the female version of not separating from her sexuality, really not managing it in a healthy way. Uh, yeah, so can we talk about female sexuality without any negative, you know, without any pejorative, or can we do it without saying that it's always positive no matter what? Th these are These look different and you often get these two different uh, connotations when it comes to female sexuality from two different sides of the political spectrum, but ultimately they, they are way more similar than, than people think. So again, we're talking about separation. We're talking about this area of insecurity, whether it's trauma or whether it's our sexuality, that can influence us, that can impact a lot of different aspects of our lives. And we gotta, you know, that, that, that theme of today, which is separation, we gotta separate from it, which means to approach these dark recesses, these areas of insecurity, ultimately in our psyche, the man behind the curtain, to approach these issues and work through them in a, I would say, very specific way, or, or more specific than you would think. But to do that, we need to know what emotions are. We need to know what emotions must be if psychology as a field is even going to exist in the first place. And we need to know how emotions are structured. We need to know how they operate based on what man is fundamentally, you know, metaphysically, man qua man, right? And then this gives us the information we need to process 
our emotions, to process our trauma, to process our insecurity around how our parents or some authority figure treated us when we are eight, to process our insecurity around our sexuality. There is a very specific way to do this. Now, you don't just do it once, right? Because the trauma may be one thing, but there may be multiple experiences that, that make up, that comprise the trauma. So we got to talk about it in a bunch of different ways. Each time we talk about it, we, you know, we drill a hole into it, it lets the light in. Light is the best disinfectant. Awareness is the best disinfectant. And then we, we just begin that process. Doesn't always feel good at first, but we begin you on that process of doing it. A very clear path doesn't make the path easy, easy, but the path can at least be clear. And the trauma gradually begins to clear up and then all the manifestations of your trauma or your insecurity around your sexuality begin to diminish it well. And then maybe you wake up six months later and you go, whoa, I, you know, I am less concerned about uh, you know, how my children act, not because you know I, I care about how they live, but because I, I'm, I'm less concerned about what it means about me. Oh, maybe I was upset at my children's behavior, not because there was anything wrong with their behavior necessarily, but I thought it reflected negatively on me. And then you just begin the process of doing this. And of course, you know, go back to what I talked about before, this leads to progress inevitably in your life. I can't say how long it's gonna take, but the, it inevitably leads to progress and that is the perfection, right? And now we're the Euroboros. The end is the beginning. You actually see, oh, the process, even as talking through one situation in a certain way, processing the trauma, processing the insecurity in a certain way, that is the end. The beginning is the end. That is the perfection. And that's what we can help you with here, just give you that process to therapy so we can manage these issues once and for all. We do free consultations, animusempire.com um, animus slash schedule. Uh, yeah, uh, again, um, check out the, the interview I did with uh, Patrick Stedman, the dating coach, dating relationship coach. I'm, I'm going to link that in the description. And remember that um, the way we, that we feel limited by external influences in our, in our life all comes down to how aware we are of our insecurity about those influences.